The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I'm delighted to bring a very unique researcher to our listeners today. Julie Manella holds a Ph.D. in biopsychology from the University of Chicago. She is a researcher at the Monell Center. I heard her speak at the University of Missouri campus where she was talking about taste preferences in childhood, and I was so fascinated by her research that I invited her to be a guest on Food Sleuth Radio. So, Dr. Manello, welcome. Oh, it's my pleasure. The research that you've done and your studies that I found so fascinating really had to do with one of your research focuses, which is how do we develop and when do we develop taste preferences, and how do those change over time? And one of the early stories that you told us was how you originally started out studying animal behavior, and you were studying rabbits. And I should probably let you describe the study, but I just want to set this up for you, that the rabbits, the offspring from the mother rabbits, their taste preferences were influenced by what those rabbits ate, the mother rabbits ate. So tell me a little bit about that research study. So my work that I did at Chicago uh, focused on mother rats and infants. And I was interested in their relationship and uh, a whole host of behaviors. But during the course of my studies at Chicago, I really got to know the animal model literature about how the young mammals, that's really a fundamental feature of all mammals, is that the first way we learn about foods is through these the flavors of the mother's diet get transmitted to amniotic fluid and mother's milk. So I didn't do the rabbit study myself. But it was a, when I read this study, it, it really influenced me because this this mother mammal nurses for very short periods of time, and what they were able to do is manipulate her diet during pregnancy as well as during lactation. What they did is they spiked her diet with a juniper berry flavor, and then they looked at the young animals when they left the nest, and lo and behold, like a wide variety of other mammals, and there's been a lot of research and rats and lambs and sheep and cow and mice and rats, the young will prefer the foods eaten by the mother during pregnancy and lactation. And so when I started my postdoc here many years ago, I was aware of this work because of my studies at Chicago, and so I wanted to ask the same questions of the mother and uh, human mother and infant. And so those studies really influenced me and how I designed the experimental study And lo and behold, we found, like other mammals, I really think it's a fundamental feature of all mammals, is that the baby learns through these flavors that are transmitted through amniotic fluid or mother's milk. Which makes it all the more important to pay attention to what we eat during pregnancy. And I love this connection. In fact, you mentioned that this emotional potency of flavors and how those flavors evoke memories and how our biology is really our taste, our flavor biology takes us back to our past. And I think it's a a fascinating understanding of our own human biology. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I think that 
an important thing to realize is that when we talk about the flavor of a food, we're not just talking about taste, like sweet, salty, bitter, sour, savory, but we're also talking about odors, and these are odors that are perceived in the back of the throat. It's really our sense of smell that enables us to distinguish strawberry versus cherry jello, for example. Well, we know that olfactory memories are our oldest, the ones that are least resistant to change that take us to our past. And it's interesting that these are the volatiles, the flavors that are getting into amniotic fluid and mother's milk. So, and, and when you look at how we begin and that how we begin to learn about foods, which is long before our first taste of foods, it's these volatile flavors that are getting into amniotic fluid and mother's milk. Every baby's experience is different. Mm-hmm. It'll change during the course of the time of day, depending on what mom eats for breakfast, what mom eats for lunch. But probably most importantly, when we think of us worldwide, is that it really reflects the culture in which that baby is being born. These are, you know, when we think of, as you were saying, food habits, they're the most enduring and endearing. Language is lost long before food habits are lost. And so you can see how this learning and the appreciation of the foods in which really define us as a people begin really early in life. Well, one of the other studies that you presented during your talk had to do with the sweet taste. And I thought it was fascinating that sweet is actually, or, or you found it to be an analgesic. Mm-hmm. And you, were, you, you found, and I'll let you again describe your research, but the research that you presented to us had to do with the ability to keep your hand in cold water depending on a sweet taste in your mouth. Right. So the doctors uh, giving the lollipop uh, after the shot, it probably will help with the pain if it's given before the shot. <laughs> right. But I, I, I started measuring, looking at, uh, I wanted to get into the sensory world of children and, and look at the you know their preference for sweet and as well as salt. I think you can't study children without really looking at sweet and salt. And what you find is that this really is a century-long legacy of some basic research studies that have done around the world is that for every culture that has looked at it, children of that culture perform more, more intense sweetness than adults of that culture. Just to give you an idea, children will prefer a, a 0.6 molar sucrose, which is pretty sweet, uh, you know, the equivalent to uh, it's six molar sucrose solution is about 12 spoonfuls of sugar and an eight-ounce glass of water. Wow. Uh, a cola is about half of that. So, you know, and we think that the why children have this heightened preference for sweet as well as salt is that they need sweet as our signal for energy. We didn't evolve in an environment of refined sugars or sugars were everywhere. It was our signal. And so you see children being born, being attracted to the predominant taste quality of human milk as well as to the taste component of carbohydrates, which they needed to grow. But we wanted to look at not just how much children like sweet, but it, we know that we knew that it was an analgesic in babies. You put, uh, and it's now standard of care in a lot of hospitals, the drop of sugar water in the mouth of a baby is often given between before uh, heel prick procedures uh, because it reduces pain. It engages the endogenous opioid system. And we find the same thing with children, that they can keep their hand in a cold water bath. It's called the cold presser test, which is a standard method for measuring pain in children. 
And so sweets are much more than just a, a preferred taste. It also makes children feel good. The more children like sweets, the better it works in, at increasing pain tolerance. And do adults also have that same response to sweet? Is it also, does it makes us feel good on a biochemical level? Yeah, the, at least for the, uh, looking at the ability for the, uh, for, you know, for pain tolerance for the cold presser, they haven't been able to find it in adults. When you don't find something you don't know if you just haven't designed the study the appropriate way. But it appears that it's even more effective in being an analgesic in babies and children. So there hasn't been a lot of evidence for it in adults. And you also found, correct me if I'm wrong, that overweight children did not have the same response as normal weight children. Right. Uh, you've got a great memory. Well, I took notes. Um, <laughs> We found that although they liked the same level of sweetness, uh, the normal weight children, it didn't work as well as an analgesic, which is do these children need to eat more sweets to get the same effect? Those are some of the questions that we, we don't have the answers to. Mm-hmm. Also, what that was so, a point that was so interesting to me was that not only do children prefer a higher sweet level than adults, they also prefer higher salt. And you explain and it, the physiology behind that. Well, it, just like sweet, you know, again, we didn't evolve in a an environment where salt was everywhere, and we need salt. It's a, a needed mineral. And so it's interesting you see uh, the children prefer higher levels of salt during times of maximal growth for bone growth. They need the minerals. And so just like sweet, children will prefer a higher level of salt than do adults. And for both sweet and salt, it appears to decrease during mid-adolescence. So even your teenagers are living in different sensory worlds when it comes to sweet or salt. Now, just because kids like sweet or salt doesn't mean that that is what they should eat. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think understanding the biology of the child, one then can, you look at it and you see how they are so vulnerable to the modern food environment of of processed foods or foods that have been sugars are added or salts are added. Uh, and I think that it, when one takes that approach, you, you know, you, I think children have to be protected from that. They're extremely vulnerable for liking sweet and salt. And the products that are made for children are often very sweet or very salty. I think anybody who makes a product for a child has to realize that first they're making a food that's defining the culture of that child, but also that Children have an increased vulnerability for sweet and salt. You also described how cereal manufacturers, in an effort to please moms, are taking some of the sugar out. But what they're doing is they're adding an artificial sweetener so that the taste is still perceived as sweet, but it doesn't have the energy in it. I wonder if you could talk about that. I know there's a a petition that the FDA has been looking at now because the dairy industry wants right. to do the same thing, right? They want to take, they want to put less sugar, more artificial yep. sweetener, and then change the label so that it becomes more difficult for the consumer. They'll have to read the ingredient label rather than seeing a lower calorie on the on the label. Yeah. And I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, very timely comment. I think that's really important. I can tell you from a basic research point of view, there's been very little basic research on non-nutritive sweeteners in children. I know of one study, and they basically did it to 
see if it was the sweet taste per se that was an analgesic in babies that looked at a non-nutritive sweetener, and yes, it was an analgesic in infants, as was sucrose. But there's very little work done on children's response to non-nutritive sweeteners, a whole host of things. And I think that it interests me from a number of points of view. The receptors that we have for for some of the basic tastes are not only in our oral cavity, but they're also in our gut. And whether these non-nutritive sweeteners are metabolically active, do they engage, you know, do we get endocrine responses when we eat something that's a non-nutritive sweetener in children? I think the jury's kind of still out. But probably more important or as important than that is that when one studies childhood, you realize that this is what children are learning is the context in which they experience the taste. We learn what spaghetti sauce is supposed to taste like, what mom's cookies are supposed to taste like. And and so what the food industry is doing by making these products that are normally not that sweet, sweeter, or saltier, is they're teaching children that breads are supposed to be sweet, relish is supposed to be sweet, mustards are supposed to be sweet. Uh, you know, they're what they're doing is they're teaching children that all these foods that typically aren't sweet, but they've added sugars to increase acceptance of, of by children, are supposed to taste sweet. So what that's going to do in the long term in how children are attracted to these type of products is an interesting one. But there's no basic research in looking at this as far as I can tell. I wonder, too, about this expectation of sweetness because I had an interesting conversation with a woman from Canada, and her comment was that she was eating some yogurt at an American food conference, and she said, Gosh, this American food is just so sweet. And I realize that the formulations must be different uh, globally than they are in the U.S. And are, are we not training our palate then to prefer this higher calorie, most of the time, food? Yeah, and that's a, a good question. And especially when you look at walk down the supermarket aisle and you look at the products geared for children, they're all sweet. So in the short term the child will be more accepting of their product because they have a biology that attracts them to sweet and salt. But what about in the long term? What does it mean for those children? Are they going to always have this heightened level for heightened preference for sweet and salt? There's some evidence for that for salt. One of our main sources of salt is in grain products and biscuits. And there was recently a longitudinal study that was done here at Monell showing that babies whose mothers had decided to feed them these biscuits or, you know, typical grain products early in life had a higher salt preference uh, during infancy as well as later in childhood than those who didn't get those products till later. So there seems to be, you know, a type of imprinting that's going on uh, early that probably is shifting the level of salt and sweet we most prefer. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Julie Manella. She is a researcher at the Monell Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I should add that the Monell Center is the world's only independent, nonprofit, scientific institute dedicated to the interdisciplinary basic research on the senses of taste and smell. When people get older and become ill, they oftentimes see a dietitian because it's our job to help them adapt their diet to their disease state and to try to move them from chronic disease to better health. 
And one of the things that we're typically asked to do is to teach a patient how to eat a diet that has less sugar and salt. And the question that often comes up is, can we retrain our palate? If we're used to a high-salt food, how long is it going to take for us to wean ourselves away from such a high-salt intake? Same with sugar. Can it be done? Well, I think that, you know, there has been studies here uh, done by Gary Beecham on shifting your preference for salt, basically by reducing the amount of salt that you, reducing the intake of processed foods and the amount of salt that is used during cooking, and that it takes several weeks, and your sensitivity to salt doesn't change, but you actually will start preferring a lower level of salt. Now, it's really interesting when you think of the biology of it, the salt receptor is pretty much a specialist. You don't have really any successful substitute for sodium chloride. There's lithium chloride, but we're not going to be adding that to food. But the sweet receptor, on the other hand, is a generalist. Obviously, it's it's binding to a lot of natural sugars, but it's also binding to these non-nutritive sweeteners. And so because of that, it's just interesting. Could you ever do that type of diet that they did in, in with salt uh, with sweet? Because what you're doing is you may reduce the level of sweetness, but you're not reducing the sensory aspect of sweetness because you're adding these non-nutritive sweeteners. Exactly. I don't know of any studies that have really tried to look at, can you shift the preference down for sweet like you can for salt? And I think those these are really important questions to ask because, that, you know, if we can develop evidence-based strategies, it, it's clearly if we can learn from the studies on salt, it ta- it's going to take a while. It's a lot harder to go down than it is to shoot up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so once you start eating higher salt foods, your preference is going to go back up again. But but you can do it. And I think that, you know, the anecdotal reports by people of whether you're talking about your Canadian colleague or other people that stop drinking colas and then tasting a cola again and, boy, it's so sweet, is that we probably most likely can shift it down. Mm-hmm. But I think we... What the time course is for that, uh, I don't think we know. How about fat? Is that adaptable also in terms uh, of preference? So little work that we've done on fat content with children. It was just a handful of studies where we looked at puddings, for example, and we looked at what was the level of sweetness the child liked in the pudding compared to adults, and clearly that was the same as if you look at the amount of sugar they like in water, they prefer higher levels of sweetness than adults. When it came to adding, changing the, the fat content or the creaminess of the pudding, there we found that the fat content didn't matter for kids. I think sweet and salt are bigger drivers. There it was the women who were preferring higher levels of fat. I think fat isn't as big as of a driver. That's why I think when the recommendation was to reduce whole milk to a 2% or a skim milk in children's diet, it, it wasn't met with that much resistance. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, children tune in more to the sweet and the salt. Mm-hmm. You know, it's That's inter- why I think those are the high-fat foods they like. They also tend to be sweet and salty. Yes. And I think we've got some evidence that that's probably what's driving it more in kids. So you probably could reduce the fat with little change in their acceptance. You know, it's interesting, after the dietary guidelines came out, and there was a big push to food manufacturers, and 
the, the push was, hey, you've got to, you know, like canned soup manufacturers, for example, you've got to make these with less sodium. And it was my understanding that the sales declined significantly. Yeah. People did not like a lower salt soup. Or maybe they were adding it at the table. And so it's my understanding that the industry actually added the salt back because the shareholders were not pleased at the declining sales. I mean, taste is still our number one reason for why we choose the food that we do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it, it. I think that's, it appears that we have to gradually reduce it. That may have been too big of an abrupt change in which the consumer could detect the difference. And it may be that it's going to be, especially for those of us who were raised, you know, if you look at the IOM report, you know, those of us who were raised with a certain level of salt, it, it may be extremely hard to, to shift it down. That's why I think one of the hopes is, is if you have a new generation of parents and babies to, by being exposed to lower sodium early in life, you may not have that elevated preference. Mm-hmm. But I think you're absolutely right. The reduction was just too much and it was too unpalatable. Yeah. I mean, this too much too soon, I think. Yeah. I think so <laughs> Rather too. than gradually weaning us right. off. Okay, so another. And maybe there's a point that we can't go below. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's the other interesting thing. Exactly. Well, one of the other areas that you research are strategies to promote acceptance of fruits and vegetables in infants and children. And of course, that's the dietitian's dream, right? And <laughs> ironically, what we find there's been some interesting research showing that if children are simply involved in growing the food, that they will right. be more likely to accept it. And of course, Brian Wansing's work showing that if you just change the logistics in a school cafeteria, the kids will choose product A over product B. But I wonder if, from a sensory standpoint, what your research has shown with regard to fruit and vegetable consumption. Yeah, well, we've looked at it from a from the earliest stages, because I think if you look at some of these long-term studies, the amount of variety of, in, of fruits and vegetables in the child's diet, by the time they're in school, the best predictor is what the amount of variety and the number of fruits and vegetables they were eating during the first you know, four years of life. Hmm. So you could see that these patterns are being established. I think that you can change the position and get kids to try it, but what to me the critical point is to get them to eat it again. And you get them to like it. That's that's a, often a key that's missing in the long-term effect of changing, you know, putting it in a McDonald's wrapper or, or you know, do you actually get the kids to to eat it and like it over the longer term? But what we find, and I think that's why, you know, breastfeeding is just such a, a beautiful system, is that you, the first way we learn about foods and Babies will be more accepting of fruits and vegetables, but their mom has to eat the food in order for them to learn. It's an elegant, simple system that begins early. And so we learn from repeated exposure that's building on the familiar during infancy, during childhood. And, you know, we're all living in our own different sensory worlds. Not everybody's going to like every fruit and vegetable, but these sensory systems have to detect the taste. Looking at a food doesn't help. They've got to taste it over repeated time, and then you can learn to like it. But it's just that many children, by the time they're in school, have never had the sensory experiences to learn to like the foods. Plus, it's not surprising that it's really difficult. You know, often there are field biologists that will look at how animal other animals learn to like foods, and it's a great quote. It's, uh, 
you can teach an old dog new tricks because it's just a lot easier to teach a young one. And mm-hmm. so I think that really reflects the plasticity of these sensory systems and how you have an opportunity early in life to learn that could really set the stage and make it easier later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think I may have mentioned to you after your talk that I really do believe in the the adage that, you know, it's a spoonful of sugar, the Mary Poppins approach, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. I think a little bit of sugar can go a long way in helping to improve the palatability of some of these foods without necessarily going overboard, as I think the food industry has. But that's just my right. take. That's just my take on things. Yeah, and I think then I think what's missing is that they, ne- you know, they really have taken the control of the consumer away. When we grew up, you added sugar to cereal, and then as you grew older, you probably added less. Right now, there's just so much sugar and, and salt that we can't even taste. So, you know, they've taken that job away from us. So there's really, with current products, there's no way to decrease. You can increase, but there's no way to decrease it. And so I think the key is, and what what you usually see in many cultures with children is, yeah, you modify the food, but then gradually the child is eating what the adult is eating. It's not just that you, you know, what industry has done is they've sweetened foods and then they've never changed it. Mm-hmm. And so the child can be, you know, older and still, you know, it's not like you add your sugar to the cereal as much anymore and then you can you have control over the amount of sugar that's in a cereal. Right. And also with regard to children's taste preferences, you had mentioned how it takes habitual exposure to develop a taste. And let's say the child may have been exposed in utero to these tastes, but maybe the child was fed formula. And then the child gets to the table and is starting to eat table food, and all of a sudden the child is rejecting vegetables. This is one of the common complaints from parents. Mm -hmm. And then there's this whole idea of how much should the parent encourage the child to just taste it? How many times do they have to go through that process before the child eventually likes it? Yeah, well, what we we found is that formula-fed babies learn just as well as breastfed babies. Breastfeeding gives the baby an advantage. They're more accepting of the foods initially, but they both learn. So it takes 8 to 10 days of repeated exposure just to taste of it, you know, in a positive context. It's going to take longer for the baby's face to change. So what you do is you focus on, you know, sometimes a baby will make a, a horrible face, but then you offer the spoon again and they keep on eating. So look at other behaviors, just not these reflexive facial responses. And then over time... Those are the types of experience that will enable the child to develop preferences for some, not all foods, but they need you know, at least 8 to 10 exposures. And, and I think that it's not just feeding a child, it's feeding a family. And so offer the fruits and vegetables that you yourself like and that you yourself eat. I think we can't feed children these foods if nobody else in the family is eating it. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think modeling is so very important. It's really key. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Manella, for being my guest. And I want to just remind everyone that if you want to learn more about the Manella Center, which is the only independent, nonprofit, scientific institute dedicated to the interdisciplinary basic research on the senses of taste and smell, you can go to the website. It's www.monell.com. 
org, and you can see the long list of Dr. Manella's research. Other areas include sensitive periods in flavor learning, the relationship between family history of alcoholism, tobacco use, and taste preferences across the lifespan. We didn't have time to get into that, but it's all here and more on the website. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Manella, I want to thank you for your insightful research, for coming to Columbia, Missouri to share that, and also for spending time with me today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.